we have been, work, had a working title with this series called Redefining Radical and the church in the ancient city of Corinth did its best to be a radical movement. But we see from what we've been reading that they made some pretty decent mistakes along the way. And this was because they were bringing their worldly ways, one might call it their pagan ways, into a movement that Jesus intended to be something entirely different. And uh, they've been challenged many ways in this letter about their behavior and their doctrine. They've been called to think about things and do things significantly different in order to be the people of God that their city, that Corinth, desperately needed to see. And, and I see so many parallels between the Western church and the Western cities that we live in, the Western world today, and the city of Corinth in ancient times. And, and I believe some of the lessons that Corinth needed to learn are lessons that we continually learn in the West as well. And uh, so I see a lot of that as we go along. And today, it's the 21st and final message in this series. And uh, we're going to read through chapter 16, and I'm going to uh, pull out some ideas, some concluding thoughts that come out of this particular chapter today. So we'll start at verse 1, and let's read these through together a bit. Here we go. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with his brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go with you with, to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the house of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. We'll pick up that last part at the end here. As many of you know, Jen and I lived in Wangaratta before we came here, and that's in the northeast part of Victoria. And the summers, people talk about 30 being hot here. Nah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's 26 degrees. Oh, no, get the T-shirts out. It's, um, but we, over there, heat waves are 43 degrees, and at about 5 p.m., it sort of hits its stride, and that's the hottest part of the day. So just as you're finishing work thinking, gee, I get a reprieve, uh-uh. 
And it, it gets really stinking hot. And a lot of the paddocks and a lot of the farm areas there do get, not quite like this, this is northern Queensland obviously, but they, they actually get really dry and really full on. I don't know how, green, how not green it gets here. 18 months of living here, we've seen a lot of rainfall. <laughs> a lot of rain. Like we've seen 10,000 litres worth of rain tank still overflowing. That's, <laughs> it's been crazy. <laughs> you don't quite get it like that up there. I mention this because in the time that Paul is writing this letter, the region where Jerusalem is, the Palestine region, is still bouncing back, still rebounding from a famine that history tells us was really intense. And the Jerusalem church was actually hit quite hard. They were already loaded up with widows and welfare needs. They were loaded up with Jews who became believers who were now becoming ostracized from their societies. And they had had a scattering so that people who, who perhaps had cash were able to use that towards missionary effort and had sort of dispersed around and left Jerusalem itself. So the church in Jerusalem was copping it really hard for an, on a number of fronts. And financially and in resource, they were suffering in a very big way. And the first four chapters, the first four verses of this chapter addresses Paul's desire to be an answer to Jerusalem's problem and it's about mobilizing the Gentile churches towards supporting the congregation that actually made way for their faith to happen the tone of verse 1 indicates that the Corinthians have been proactive about this we're actually asking how they could get with the program there was initially some eagerness from Corinth we'll read in 2nd Corinthians that it started to wane off But at this point, Paul is happy to oblige with their inquiries. He actually, in doing so, he gives them some tips about this. First, he tells the Corinthian church that this sort of giving and this sort of answer is a team effort. He uses the phrase, each of you should. So it's not just something the rich Corinthian people participate but it was something that everyone was encouraged to do. Everyone could do something. He states that it's not a once-off dip into your pocket, but something you stopped and considered often. The first day of the week here could be a nod to the significance of a church meeting on that time to worship, or it could just simply be payday. Whatever it is, there is a call here to regularly consider those like Jerusalem who were doing it tougher than they were. And with this, we see a massive lesson from Paul. It's given to the Corinthians, preserved for generations. Radical kingdom believers are deliberately, intentionally generous people. This is not a command to tithe, but it was a call to the church to be generous. In this particular instance, there's two things. Um, one very clearly mentioned, the other one just sort of thrown in there. In this main one, it was a call to extend generosity to the poor. This is another very clear and practical way of living out the idea of looking out for the little guy. There was another bit in there that you may send me on my way as well. Paul was hoping that they would be a contributor to his ministry going forward too. 
the Gentile churches were doing quite well for themselves. But there would certainly be poorer believers in Asia Minor and Europe in the years to come. But now in this instance, Jerusalem was the little guy. And the Corinthians had a chance to make a real difference at this time. Now generosity was one of the first noticeable outward traits of the early church. We see this in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes down, the church forms, thousands of people come to faith, and at the very end we see people sharing in common in a number of fronts, including their finances and their resource. We see them selling possessions and property to ensure others weren't left in need. Some scholars suggest that that might have actually contributed to the impoverished position they're in now. Maybe, maybe not, and yet the hand of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord rested on that church for it. In Galatians 2, Paul writes that Peter, James and John, key leaders of the Jerusalem church, asked him, as asked Paul as they commissioned him to Gentile service. They asked that he continually remember the poor as he ministered. We see the epistle of James and says what? one One aspect of true religion is about care for the poor and the widow. Paul also indicates here that generosity in the church would always also be something that builds unity among believers as well. Again, we have a major element of church life that all church leaders of Scripture deem valuable. Unity and the way they used finance was actually one of the contributors to that as well. But there's other things in here, not just the money talk here today. The rest of this chapter, we go on to speak about some final words about significant church leaders. That's next on Paul's final comments here. And we've seen a number of examples that showed that Corinthian church, the Corinthian church, pretty much this was a growth area for them in a very big way. They were questioning the apostolic authority of Paul. They were elevating themselves over each other. That's a very pagan thing to do has no place in the church they were creating factions based on which was the biggest name they could drop and hold sway in the church there was division being bred here there was damaged doctrine the church was not doing so well in this area and was causing a bit of floundering and as paul writes here in this final chapter we see some really interesting things First up, he wants to get back there and set them straight a bit. That's coming, and that's called a painful visit. In 2 Corinthians, we're looking at that next week and going to have a whole new theme to look at. And uh, yeah, we'll begin to get some history and understanding of what went down there. But first, Timothy's coming. At this point, Tim is roughly a 38-year-old fella who has devoted himself to the gospel. He knows it in and out because he's hung with Paul. He knows the doctrine of Paul. He knows the gospel that Paul has preached and he has received it and is replicating that himself. But he's still a relatively timid guy. It's not for no reason that Paul is telling Corinth not to treat him with contempt. The Corinthian church was a hard nut to crack. And Timothy would be in for a bit of a hard time if Paul didn't address that issue first. And yet, even in sending Timothy at this time, Paul is actually reinforcing what he's already said. 
Leading a church is not a game of who has the greatest eloquence or human wisdom or all the flashiness that Corinthians seem to gravitate to. Instead, it was all about holding fast and preaching the foolish gospel and trusting the Spirit to back them up in power. Timothy would be every bit the quiet and humble pastor and teacher that Paul was. And Corinth was being put on notice here not to despise him. In other words, literally, don't trash the fella. And see that he has nothing to fear. Don't feed the timidity. Don't, buy, don't, be, don't push him further into his shell. Don't send him packing. Receive him, don't trash him. Apollos gets mentioned next. And he's already been a pastoral presence in Corinth. Chapter 1 tells us some in the church considered themselves of Paul or of Apollos because he had been through there. This is the final time that we see the phrase now about written, now about Apollos. So that would indicate some in the church are actually asking after him, even perhaps hoping he'd make a return. Apollos was known to be the more eloquent of the two. He probably fitted the bill of what some in Corinth might have considered the more suitable pastor for their needs. However, while the Corinthian church is playing one off against the other like kids with their parents, Dad said I could. You know, Mum said I could. Paul writes of the unity, consultation and brotherhood that exists between himself and Apollos. We're in town together. I'm talking to him, he's talking to me. We're talking about plans for ministry. You're not in it for him right now. But we're together. Paul, Apollos gets a mention here because Paul is making a point with that. Stop dividing your church over this because we are in unity, so should you be. The other honourable mention is Stephanus, an elder of Corinth. One of the few that Paul himself baptised in that city. One of the first converts to the, to the faith in that city. A foundational church member. Such men in Paul's words are worthy of recognition. We have very three different types of leadership being mentioned here. You've got the leaders of the past the valuable, perhaps even sentimental foundations they've laid. Apollos definitely fitted that bill and it looks like he's keen to stay out of the way for the time being and remain part of their past, at least for now. You've got future leaders, like Timothy. And you've got the faithful and the foundational leaders who have and will continually be present in the congregation. Pastors may come and go, but then you've got the others like Stephanus, the elders, the, 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 the great minds in any congregation. So many different ways that the Lord has instituted valuable leadership and headship in the church. And Paul presents a radical call for believers here to submit to all those types of people. The Greek word used here is a military term. 
And that's no accident given that the average patron, some of the more influential people in the church, the ones more likely to be clawing for position, were most likely retired soldiers. And it actually means to rank yourself under. It's countercultural stuff here by Paul. In a town where everyone wanted to be known, where they wanted to be recognized, where they wanted things done in their honor and in their name and in their favor and in their influence. He says these guys are to be regarded as more worthy than they. So Paul's essentially saying in your mind and in your attitude and in your heart, promote proper, humble leaders no matter where they stand in the church. And in order to receive something from them, demote yourself. In the midst of all that, Paul actually throws one verse in there about some basics of Christian character. These have been covered in detail earlier, but this is his final word on that issue. He says to be on your guard. Watch, stay awake, be vigilant. We saw last week that a rejection or the ignorance of the resurrection would come at the expense of such vigilance. If you've got nothing to watch for, if you've got nothing to anticipate, you, got, you will not be vigilant. We also know they had a bit of an unhealthy sense of spiritual arrival. What we call today an overly realized eschatology. And this would cause them to drop their guard as well. I mean, if you've arrived, why be vigilant? Instead, the church was being called to wake up here. You haven't arrived. There's a resurrection to come. There's eternity to watch for and a Christ who will return. So wake up and be vigilant. And I believe that's equally a call, a wake-up call for the sleeping giant called the Western Church. He writes to stand firm. He may have been using the imagery of Roman shields like this one. Standing firm means to be stationary, to don't give ground. It's the Ephesians 6 stuff. Take up the shield of faith that extinguishes the flames of the evil one. How many times do we see Christians turn and run the minute something shakes up, their faith or their resolve? A shield is a forward defense. It's useless in retreat. And if this is the image that Paul has in mind, it's not not a solo effort either. Standing firm is a team sport. Be strong and courageous. Now that's been a call from Joshua to now, hasn't it? something that God has constantly repeated to his people because it takes courage to be a radical believer in Christ and to live this life out be strong be very courageous and our faith must be done in love throughout this letter we've seen that in Paul's thinking love far outweighed spiritual gifts eloquence miracles or insight. 
It was of the highest priority in the way the church would conduct itself. It was the most consistent way of demonstrating what Christ was really like. The word done here suggests being propelled or motivated. So love is actually the fuel that drives our hearts as we serve the Lord. And finally, the last verses speak of proper brother affection, brotherly affection. This is the bit that I'm about to read now where Paul stops dictating the letter and he picks up the pen himself. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. We see some insights here about the way the church, for the most part, esteemed each other. The concept of greeting here, the salutation, was a picture of giving the warmest possible regard. This is deep fondness being spoken out here. If you're away on a business trip and you phone up your spouse and go, can you give my child, give my son a a kiss on the cheek and say it's from me, say it's from mommy, say it's from daddy. And you go ahead and do that, that child has understood the full weight of that, haven't they? That distant parent knows I love me, you know, has said they love me and I believe it and I know the full weight of that. This is real affection. And warm greetings were always conveyed with an embrace and a kiss in that culture. The brotherly affection Paul shows here taps into the idea of family and friendship. Genesis 29 tells of Jacob meeting up with his uncle Laban and that was accompanied with a hug and a kiss. This is repeated several times over in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 20 speaks of the friendship between David and Jonathan. Again, a friendship of, 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 of a sign of friendship has that kiss involved as well. We know that Jonathan held David in the highest of regard. As radical people of the kingdom, we embrace the idea that we are the family of God. And it's an interesting way of looking at this because the idea of family suggests a dynamic not found in any other social group. It's also why I don't like name tags in church. Because we're family. The thing that ties all believers together is this idea that we've been born into this thing. Because of this, there's a tie or a loyalty to each other that we can't explain, but we adhere to anyway. You can be at odds with a family member. My best friend was part of three brothers. And it's really funny watching them do life because they would constantly be at each other's throats. It would actually, in this big three-acre property they lived on, it would turn into boxing matches. But don't you dare pick on one of them if you're an outsider. Is she coming at my brother? It's my job to box my brother, not you. <laughs> if someone became suddenly really ill, 
I remember there was a family member who actually had a, a very real illness and loads of people in our family, even ones who thought they were, you know, just we thought they were estranged, were considering being tested to see if they could actually be a donor towards that person to see if they could be part of the uh, solution, not the problem. It's amazing what family does when, when up against it. The church is an interesting entity. It's a bunch of people all united in one thing, which is Jesus. There's often not a lot of things between us that actually link us together outside of these four walls. I come as an outsider into this and you've embraced me as family, me and Janet's family. Through faith we were born into this, if you will. If Jesus elects to put us together, knowing that we operate as his body, which Paul has already pointed out, then we need to value what is at work here. The Lord is doing something special and he elects to put all of us together, regardless of where we've come from and what we think we have to bring to the table, regardless of where we've come from. Some of us from really out, really out there parts of the world coming together. The Lord is putting something special together when he does that. We need to value what's at work here. And the church is also a place where healthy friendships can and should develop and flourish. Because it's the right sort of peer pressure to have in our lives. And in most cases, the social interaction can be an edifying experience. Hebrews 10, one of the verses I love to quote. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's good peer pressure right there. Not giving up meeting together. In other words, we don't just hang and watch everybody from Facebook, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, as all the more. So all the more since then is all the more, all the more, all the more. The day is approaching even more, if it's even more urgent today. Nobody gets the best out of me more than good family and friends. Good godly family and friends. And I believe that might be the case for most of us here. That's a bit of an overview of the chapter. I just want to throw a few challenges out there. Then we're going to pray and worship the Lord after that time. Four things to consider. One, let's consider generosity. Is generous a word that you would use to describe yourself? This is not a question about whether you tithe or not. You're never going to be asked that here. But we're actually talking about the overall way we use the resources that we have been blessed with. Do we overlook the widows, orphans and foreigners in our midst and in our neighbourhood? Do we demonstrate the values of the kingdom through our stewardship? Does enough of that which we are blessed with benefit or bless somebody else? Let's consider generosity. Let's consider those we submit to. Paul speaks against despising the leaders God has and will place in our lives. And I realized as I've done a bit of self-examination just how 
at risk we can be in today's consumeristic way. How critical I can be of what I see on video clips or on TV. How nasty I can be towards God's people and God's leaders. How nasty we can all be. My past influences have been, for the most part, awesome. And God has used those to speak heavily into my life. And I know we can all tell stories of that. Our past history with good godly leaders has been good. We had a former pastor here only a couple of weeks ago. I spent five minutes with that man. I was deeply enriched just by that short time. In Wangaratta, Jen and I had to follow the footsteps of a legendary 78-year-old pastor as a 37-year-old. That was a culture shock. He's gone on to be the Lord with the Lord only a few months ago. But it's great to see what leaders of our past have done and the foundations they've laid. And, and, and that is something that we can all submit to, even the ones that have benefited from that. Future influences will also be awesome in my life and yours. And so are those around me now. We must not be swift to reject any of those godly influences and leaders in our life. The Lord is going to use them all. We must have the right attitude towards them all. There's a bit of a Western trend of believers choosing not to live under any leadership, community or accountability. Strangely, those engaged in parachurch organisations or welfare roles seem to be the most at risk in my personal experience of falling away. Frankly, there's nothing healthy about omitting those things. We're supposed to have Christian leaders and teachers in our lives, real ones that look us in the eye, not the ones on YouTube. Even Facebook Live, we need to know you in person. And Paul writes that we're all supposed to be submitted to them. Paul would later flesh this out and call it mutual submission in Ephesians. What God does is he actually takes a number of ways people wield influence in the church so that guys like me as a senior pastor don't get lofty and have somebody to submit to. So that people who, don't have, who are struggling to relate to one person can actually find another person and go, I can learn from you and I can grow under you. so that we all are enriched by what the Lord is doing in all of us and through all of us. Submitting means mentally taking a lower rung so a person above us can actually teach us something. It means to stop resisting, to relax and yield to good instruction. There are many people in my life, both in this room, in this ministry team, and beyond, who are brave enough and godly enough to speak in a leading way to me. And this benefits me no end. If you have that relationship in your life, embrace it, run with it, enjoy it.
because it will enrich you. Always be leadable. Always be teachable. And if need be, demote yourself so that you can be those two things. Let's briefly consider our conduct. Is my behavior consistent with the values of the kingdom? Is my life a demonstration of the kingdom? Does it live up to the tag of being bought with a price? Does it anticipate resurrection by living in a transformed way now? Does it stand firm? Is it strong and courageous? And is it done, am I driven by love? Or are my life and my motives fueled by something else? And finally, let's consider Christian community. How do I interact with the kingdom people that God has placed around me? Is there a sense of family or friendship happening? Or are we happy to remain unhealthily aloof from each other? The radical kingdom way is by design something expressed in community. House church leaders, tomorrow you'll get an email with the next Bible study. It's almost written, about this much to go. And it will explore this idea further. The fully realized kingdom will be a completely reconciled and beautifully functioning community. I may be an introvert. I may sometimes be untrusting at times. But I must, and so should we, we must get in with the program and embrace that agenda now. We're going to sign off on 1 Corinthians with those reflections, generosity, leadership, conduct, community. If any of those four need addressing or need some prayerful reflection or need work in your life, we're going to pause and allow the Lord to speak to you and do what he will. And then when the band is ready, we'll lead you in one last song of worship before finishing today.